This is episode six of the Cooley account. After Bob wins the Count Dante trial, he takes on two more high-profile murder cases, both of which cement his reputation as a defense attorney on the rise. One case is the Sal Koppel murder trial. The other is the defense of a hillbilly gangster living on the north side of Chicago. We also talk about a near brawl with the notorious Tony Spilatro. Their initial hatred of one another blossoms into a friendship. There's also some details from Bob about alleged game fixing of Ivy League basketball games. Games that Bob gets tips on that he never loses. So, Bob, you win the Count Dante case. What happens next? When I won the case, you know, people's eyes opened up a little bit. There's this young guy, my friend Bill Murphy, who was a public defender, approached me. And he said, I've got one of my clients who's been charged with murder. His name is Donald Chrisman. He, he was charged with robbing a jewelry store up on the north side. The old old jeweler, was his, his name was Sal Koppel. He said, I think he's innocent. You know, and maybe you want to get some practice. So I met with I met with Donald's uh, mother. Donald worked in the sewers. He was a sewer worker. He was an ex-con, but he was a sewer worker. And I met with his mother, and you know, she told me she doesn't have much money. And I told her I do it for I'll do it for five hundred dollars because I wanted to get to practice. Did you have any reservations that you were taking on too much? Was the Donald Chrisman defense too much too soon for you? My attitude was: it's a case. That you know that I'll probably lose because it's a you know it's, they had it they had what they thought was a great case. Uh, I've watched a lot of jury trials and I paid attention to what these other guys were doing wrong. I wanted to practice cross examining and whatever. And I, I when I took the case, I said I thought I would do my best. That was it. I didn't worry about nothing. Back. What could happen if you lose? All these lawyers are losing all their cases. You know, I, I just took the case mainly for practice. And it was a real bizarre situation. Donald Chrisman was about six foot two. He was a hillbilly type. Uh, you know, he was about six foot two with black what do you, hair. What do you mean a hillbilly type? Like look like a hayseed walking tall or something? No, I'm not talking about I'm being disrespectful. I'm saying, that, you know, we had a hillbilly section. These were people that were from, you know, Virginia and West Virginia and those places. There was a section up there in the north side of Chicago, and I represented all those people, Paul Baker and a bunch of the others down the road. But uh, these were mainly from the hills and the hillbilly section. But he, he looked the type. He was an ex-con, big, mean-looking guy. Uh, but he had been working. He had, a, he had a job. But again, he was six foot two and had black hair. And the description of the offender was five foot eight to five eleven. And what had happened was he worked in the sewers and he had just cast his check about a block or so away from there when the robbery took place. Uh, you know, he was arrested out there, but you know, it was a street stop and he was identified supposedly as the as the one who did it. The victim's wife testified and I'm cross examining her. I said, You told the police initially he was five foot eight to five eleven. And I said, you know, stand up. And Donald stands up. And I said, he's six foot. He was six two or six three. And and she said he had light brown hair. He had pure. He had pitch black hair. Now, what's ironic about this too? Who's the prosecutor? The state prosecutor prosecuting the case? My friend Tony Corzentino. Tony Corzentino and a guy named Mike Wolf were the two prosecutors on the case. I had bet Tony five hundred dollars I'd win the case. We were running around almost every day. Uh, I'm, I'm frustrated somewhat, you know, with my cross-examining and, you know, and uh, she gets off the stand 
The next morning, I'm having breakfast over at Jean's. That's the restaurant about a block down from the courthouse where everybody goes, mainly policemen, prosecutors, judges, attorneys, you know, 98% of the clientele in there. I go in there for breakfast, and I wasn't doing court until around 11 o'clock. That's when they would start the jury. I'm in there having breakfast because I was there every day that I was at 26th Street. Every, every morning, I would have breakfast there. When I'm finishing up, a couple of detectives are walking by. And uh, one of them says to me, Bob, and you know, I said, yeah. He says, they're fucking around with you on that case. And I said, what? Who's they? Meaning the, you know, the, meaning the prosecutors and the court and the police. He saw, all he said to me was, they're fucking around with you. They're withholding something from you on that case. And that's all he would say. I have no idea what he's talking about. I know they did something. I didn't know what. When I go up to the courtroom, I walk in there. Now, here I'm, I'm practicing law for about maybe three or four months. The judge was an old time. It was a real old Jewish judge and, and a real tough state-minded guy. He's sitting up there in the, at the bench, and he's hearing some motions. There's a couple lawyers in front of him talking to him. And I walk in, the, and I walk in there. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And, and when I get close to the bench, I'm on the right-hand side, the left-hand side of the judge, and the right-hand side walking towards, you know, towards the judge's chambers. And I said, Judge, I've got to talk to you about something. And he looks over at me, and I said something again, and he says, you sit down. He yells at me. You sit down. Don't be disrupting this court. You know, or I hold you in contempt. I go, and again, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, but, you know, I've got to try and do something. So I, I wait for a few, I wait maybe about five or ten minutes, still trying to figure out what the hell am I going to do. He walks into the back with me, and I says, Judge, they're withholding some evidence from me. Who is? I said, the prosecutors. I said, they're withholding some evidence from me. What are you talking about? I said, bring them in here and we'll ask them. He brings in Tony and he brings in Mike, Mike Wolf, who was, who was a, a tall, kind of a fattish, you know, one of those overweight guys, no muscle, all basically fat. And the two of them are there. And I said, I want the other, re I want the other reports you're withholding from me. They, they both, what are you talking about? I said, you're withholding a report from me. I was told by a friend of mine that you're withholding the reports. And the judge says to me, who is your friend? Who, who told you that? I said, I, I'm not going to give his name up. I said that they know what I'm talking about. Both of them indicated, we don't know what you're talking about. And I said, all right, then. I said, I didn't want to, but I'm going to have to bring him in. I'm going to have to bring him in here. And, and, I, and I get up and I start to walk out. What I'm going to probably do is, well, yeah, again, I'm doing all this on the fly. You know, I get about halfway to the door and Tony says, wait a second. I think I know what he's talking about. And he says, uh, I think I, and Tony says again, I think I know what he's talking about. Tony goes down to the state's attorney's office. And when he comes back, he comes back with a report. They had already given me this report. It was a lineup identification where Saul Koppel's wife indicated, you know, that's the man and pointed out Donald's, you know, picture. On the bottom of the report they show me now, there's a indication after she left the police station, she called up and she said, I'm really not sure that's the man or something like that. 
I, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm not 100%. She said, I'm not 100% positive. When they gave me the report, they had put a piece of paper or something over it, and it was blocked out. What you have to understand is, you know, these people all the time would do stuff like that, you know, and get away with it. I'm going to win this case no matter what. You know, this this case will be reversed. The judge would not let me call her back on the witness stand. He was an old Jewish judge. And these were Jewish people. This was, you know, Sal Koppel and his wife. I know you can't read his mind, but why would that thinking, why would the Judaism go to the fact that a guy's being framed because a woman was uncertain about something and that the prosecutors tampered with the evidence? I, I have no idea why, you know, again, I'm being honest with you. You ask me why somebody would do something. I make my own assumptions. My thought was, too, when she was up there, when I was cross-examining her, she started crying. Uh, you know, when I, when, when I would cross-examine somebody, uh, you know, I would really get, get at them. So you win this case, and it's a big deal, obviously. Is, it, is this case in the news? Is this something that's tracking in the news? Oh, yeah. Do you have uh, yeah. any sense or opinion how often things of this nature happen in that the police would corral somebody and then the prosecutors are just cooking the books to get a conviction? When these people feel somebody is in, well, again, I had, I had a $500 bet with Tony, with Tony on the, on the case. And during that time too, you have to understand $500 didn't mean spit to me because that's when I'm, I'm making some, I'm making real big money gambling, uh, you know, with my, with my gambling operations. And I was booking two by that time. Uh, you know, I, you know, I ran around all the time with thousands of dollars in my pocket because I had to pay and collect from people. I was running around a lot of times with 10, 15, $20,000 in my pocket. And I got bigger and bigger because I was out two, three nights a week at these clubs in the Western suburbs. And these are full of bookmakers and hitmen and, and all the rest of it. I'm paying and collecting huge sums of money because I'm playing one bookmaker against the other, betting, betting this one with certain odds and that one with other odds. One is going to be winning, one is going to be losing. And I'm passing out big money all the time. And I started going to Las Vegas. And when I started going to Vegas, I started losing. I would lose a lot of money there. Uh, I would lose playing dice because... Uh, after a couple of trips, they started flying me out there free. Every Thursday, they they chartered a plane and they would fly the people out from Chicago to the MGM, and they would pay my in fact they would pay my plane fare to fly me out there because I was I was a big loser at the dice tables and at the and at the blackjack table. Before you start going to Vegas, you're just gambling in Chicago and you're winning. But I'm losing. I'm losing playing dice and I'm losing. I'm losing the other, but at the same time, I'm on the phone calling back and I'm doing a lot of my business on the phone. So I'm still making a ton of money with the sports because of the way I'm doing it. A couple of things happened in Vegas. I made contact with a professional gambler, Tony Spilatro and Pat Herbie Blitzstein had become clients of mine. I was, they were sending me a lot of business. They used to meet at the Jubilation all the time, big restaurant bar owned by Doug Buffard and some Chicago people. In there, I met a professional gambler, Jack Roberts. Uh, that's all he did for a living was, was gamble. And I also, at the same time, made contact with another major major gambler, Tony, who owned La Coca Vin. It was a restaurant in a building over there on Lakeshore Drive. And I was introduced to another professional gambler who I never met who lived in New Orleans. And these people were involved in all kinds of other activities. They were involved in 
fixing horse races and I'm getting all kinds of, I'm, I'm betting with them and I'm making bets for them. And, and we're talking, the numbers are getting huge now, uh, where, you know, every, every day, how are you, day, how I are think, you capable of managing your life? This clearly was your element in that you constantly needed to be busy and in motion. The gambling, was that just as much of a job as being an attorney? I put more time in on that than I did on as an, as an attorney. My preparation for a jury would be to go home at 2.30 or 3 instead of at 4 or 4.30. And when I, when I prepared for a case, my sole preparation would be I would get the police reports, I would look at the witness statements, and I would see what they say, and I assumed you know, and it, and it would be that case most of the time that, you know, some of the police would lie or somebody would lie trying to make a better case or whatever. And on cross-examine, I could make them look like a liar up there. But again, I put every single witness on the stand, even Joey Erdo's case, the Jagoff defense case. Joey Erdo was a case, he had been charged with arson. It was under the new statute because there were people in the house uh, that was uh, that was set on fire where he faced a minimum minimum, I think it was a minimum of 10 years in prison. This is, this is kind of, you know, as we're talking about cases, this is a real important one. They, they had what they thought was a great case on Joey, and I agreed with them. The police and the FBI started watching Joey Erdo uh, during the Harry Alleman trial, when he would be there every day. And, they, and when they followed him out, he looked suspicious. He was an Italian kid, a big, a big tough Italian kid. They followed him out of court one day and found out the car he's driving was a stolen car. Uh, they also found out, I guess, from uh, Louis Almeida and some of the others, he was supplying the stolen cars to these guys to go out and commit murders and, and to commit burglaries and whatever. He had a garage where he would always have one or two. Uh, any, anyhow, that's how they, they got uh, paid attention to him. And then he got arrested for the jewel robbery. There was a, there was a store, Tofano's, a restaurant, Tofano's, that was right there uh, off Taylor Street. It was on the side street. Tofano, the old man, was close to Johnny DiArco, and Johnny DiArco got him the license to build a big, big restaurant, unbelievably popular restaurant, where a lot of the mob people went and the rest of it. Well, somebody got robbed of a $50,000 diamond you know, leaving there. And Joey got arrested, had gotten arrested on that on a prior occasion. Joey one day is asleep. He's running, a, he's running the front part of a house and he's asleep on the couch and somebody puts a bomb in the front door and blows, and, and blows the front door and part of the front of the house out. And Joey was sleeping on the couch apparently with, you know, with the back end of the couch to the door and he just wound up with a terrible headache. Well, the owner threw him out of the house, obviously. So a short time after that, Joey's out with the owner's kid. They're out at a nightclub called the 123 Disco up on the north side. And on the way back, they got into a fight. And uh, apparently the owner's kid and another guy uh, beat up and threw, threw Joey out of the car. They threw him out of the car and they beat him up. His car was parked in front of the, in front of the house. You know, Joey gets in the car and Joey leaves. I guess about uh, 15 minutes later, the house is on fire and the owner's car in the back is on fire. When the police come and do their investigation, there was a gas station about a half a mile away. And they get a hold of a girl 
who indicates that uh, Joey Erdo came in there, bought a five-gallon can of gas, and about, she said, and about five, ten minutes later, she heard fire engines coming, and then Joey came back. You know, she knew him. Joey came back and says, if you if you indicate that I bought this, I'm going to kill you. When they got the can, the can of gas, they found a pack of matches from the 123 Disco with Joey's fingerprints on them by the car in the back. And they had Joey's fingerprints in the can of five-gallon can of gas. So Joey gets arrested and he gets charged. This is a problem. I had built up a reputation as being, you know, as being a, t- a fantastic lawyer. Joey comes to me and hires me. So I tell him, well, you know, what I'll do is I'll try to get the case reduced, and uh, you know, and you know, probably, and you'll probably get a couple of years, and hopefully get you a couple of years. I said that uh, I think I can, I think that I can get it reduced. And uh, so I make contact with the special, it was a special prosecutor in the case. I make contact with him and I said, you know, I'd like to work out a plea. What, what kind of a plea can we work out? And he says, I want 10 years. <laughs> I said, I said, no, it was six to 10 years, I think it was. But he said he wanted the maximum sentence. I said, what are you, crazy? I, I'm not going to plead him to, you know, to the maximum sentence. And he says to me, I've had 25 cases. That's all he handled were arson cases. He says, and I never lost one, and I'll certainly never lose this one. I said, I don't want to go to trial. It's going to take about a week. I said, you know, you don't want, he says, no. He says, you know, I want the maximum sentence. So we have to go to trial. We start the trial. And again, my preparation was, you know, I sat down with Joey, and I prepared him, you know, because he's going to be testifying. I prepared him and I said, now you're going to, you'll get up and you'll indicate. He had been arrested about maybe 25 times. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I'm sure he had a long rap sheet. Yeah, he had been arrested about 25 times. And I said, you're going to and you'll indicate. And I said, that, you know, you don't lie up there. You indicate. And he had never been to jail. He had, you know, they were a lot of, a lot of, you know, there were a lot of major things, you know, obviously the jewel robbery and, and, uh, you know, in, in a bunch of felonies, but a lot of them were just, you know, in fights or disorderly conduct and, and things like that. So I, I prepare him. I said, you know, and we'll see what happens. I said, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, in the case was before a real tough judge at the time, uh, Bailey, James Bailey, who didn't like me. I didn't get along with him because not long before that, in one of these, in one of these parties, he he wound up throwing a glass of water, a glass of water, but the whole thing, the water and the glass into the face of this public defender who was there at the table. And I happened to be sitting a couple of seats down from the table. And when he did it, I jumped up and what the fuck is the matter with you? And and I got right in, I got right in his face. People jumped in the middle. He had been a boxer too. He 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 was one tough guy. For it. But anyhow, he was a real tough judge. So the first witness they have is the policeman, the patrolman, the one who came to the scene, found a can of gas. When I get up to cross-examine him again, you know, I said, "You know Joey. You know Joey over here, don't you?" And he looks at me. He goes, "Yeah, I know Joey." I said, "And you think he's a drag off, don't you?" And he looks at me. I never even thought of it. I had no idea what I was going to do as I walked up there. I have no idea how this, you know, happened to come to my mind, but it did. 
And like I say, he hesitated. You know, I said, you think he's a, you think he's a jag up. You've arrested him how many times? He had arrested him about four times before. I said, you don't like him at all, do you? And he said, you know, well, and you know, that's how I start my cross-examination. We finish up. Now, the next witness is going to be the fingerprint expert. And I know a little bit about that, but not a lot. You know, they need to they need to identify so many points and the rest of it because he had all these charts and all these other things. And I thought, you know, it's just a waste of time to try and argue with him. So the, but the prosecutor wanted to call him anyhow to make a big show of it. He puts on the fingerprint expert and he testified these were his fingerprints that were on there. And then he testified about the, uh, you know, the can of gas. He said these were the only identifiable prints on the can of gas. What he meant to say, I'm sure, was these were the only ones that were identified based on who we were asked to identify or whatever. I'm sure that's what he meant to say. When he finished up right away, the moment he said that, you know, I just went on with the rest of it. This was the summertime when this happened. What I'm going to do is question the others about, you know, were you wearing gloves or whatever? And then I'm going to argue that, uh, you know, He's obviously lying. You know, he's lying. When the detective uh, testifies, in fact, he had been called to the scene. He mentioned, you know, that, you know, the other policeman gave him the can of gas and, and he then they were, they were talking about, you know, the control or uh, the control of the, uh, of the can of gas. And he indicated the policeman handed it to him and he, he gave it to somebody else. And, and I did the same thing with the girl in the gas station. And then cross-examining the girl at the gas station, I found I found out, have you ever been arrested? And she said, well, yes. She had been arrested about two months before this. And, uh, you know, and I got her to testify that, you know, she had been contacted by the state's attorneys. And now they indicated to you that, you know, if you testified, they would dismiss those charges, right? And she said, well, yes. Then I argued to the jury you know, Joey's here because he's a jagoff in the, in the eyes of these police. These police don't like him. They hate him. And I argued that, you know, the fingerprint guy indicated the only fingerprints that were found were his. I twisted the words on it. I, I have no idea why. They had a second five-gallon can of gas under the table. And, you know, I had noticed it there all along. Uh, and nothing was ever mentioned about that. And then I walked over and I kicked because they, they had the one can of gas on top of the table when they're talking about in their closing, his fingerprints were found on this. And I walk over and I kick that out in the middle of the floor. Which, which can of gas, what's, what's this can of gas all about or whatever? And, and then I tell Joey to stand up. I said, Joey, stand up. And I, I made some comments about, yeah, he's been, you know, he's a criminal. He's a, no, he's a known criminal. And he's done a lot of bad things in his day. I argued like I did in every one of my cases. I never argued to the jury he didn't do it. And I didn't argue that in Joey's case. I said he might have done it and he might not have done it. But you have an obligation under the law that he must be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And Why that technique? Is that something you learned or that was your instinct? No, I just, I never, I just thought it. This is my own mind. Two things when I started defending cases. I would go there and, you know, I had no choice. When I was involved in cases, I had to watch them. If you're sitting there in a courtroom and people are saying all these bad things that you did and you sit there and you don't testify and your lawyer gets up and says he has a right to remain silent and doesn't have to testify. If I'm a juror, I'm going to find the guy guilty. He must be guilty. And I noticed that whenever lawyers get indicted, 
They don't sit there and say nothing. If a lawyer gets indicted, he gets up there. That was just my own feeling on a case. Every case I had, I wouldn't argue he didn't do it. I would always argue he might in fact with Joey. I, I said, Joey, you know, stand up. And I remember when I was saying, you know, he might have done it and he might not have done it. Joey didn't know either when I was going to get up and call him a jag off, you know. <laughs> But uh, Joey continued to stand, and I'm I'm going on for about five minutes. And when I gave my closings, I never read from any paper. When I get, when I got up, even if I was on trial for a couple of weeks on a case, my closing my closing notes were like about maybe one sentence here, one sentence there to go into this or that. But I would not I would not read off any kind of a statement. I would just read off you know, read off by memory and whatever. When the jury was out. Judge Bailey, we were over at the Jean's restaurant where everybody goes while the juries are out. And Bailey was a big drinker, too. In fact, Bailey owned Popeye's Chicken Store in the corner. One of the most popular Popeye's is probably in the country. Anyhow, he tells me, he says, you're going to be in serious trouble, he said. When they find him guilty and it goes up to the court and they see that you're swearing and you're, you're calling your client a jag off, he said, you're, you're liable to get disbarred. He didn't like me from the start. When the jury came back with him not guilty, he goes back and he yells at the jury. I assumed he'd be found guilty too. I mean, I just did. Yeah. But the jury bought, the jury bought my nonsense. He went back there and he said, do you realize that you just put this guy back out in the street? You know, I've never seen that before. Did the defendant tell you that he committed the crime or you didn't want to know? I assumed he did. I mean, are you kidding me? He gets kicked out of the house. He has a fight with the guy's kid. He's at the one, two, three disco. They find those matches by the car. His fingerprints are over everything. This girl, you know, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that he did it. But the judge, that's what the judge basically came in there. Are you kidding me? How could you have found him not guilty? Does this case catapult you further? By that by that time, Neil, every time I had a jury at 26th Street, you know, the room would fill up. Cooley's going to give his closing. Let's see what he does this time. About, I'd say, 35 major trials. And I won all but two of them. And, you know, one way or the other, I just, you know, in my argument, like I say, would not be my argument would would not be that he didn't do it. My argument would be that, you know, he might have done it. He might not have done it, that you have an obligation. You took an oath. And then here's the reasonable doubt, because what I watched lawyers do over and over again when they're cross examining and a person says something, you know, that can be used later to destroy him as a witness they continue on and give him a chance to rehabilitate himself. And when I talk about winning all my cases, these are the ones where I alone was the, you know, was the attorney. I was involved in some earlier cases with, you know, with Johnson and with Tuit and those people. And the first couple of them, you know, when they were the big shots, you know, I had to sit back and, and watch them mess the case up. These cases that you won, that you're talking about, were all on the up and up. Yeah, but certainly. I mean, I, Marco and those people thought I was fixing juries. I wasn't fixing juries. Are you out of your mind? Uh, but they thought I was on cases like Paul Baker, another murder case. You know, I knew he didn't do it. I knew who did kill the guy. Paul Baker was up on the north side. I'm Leader Liquors. I represented Leader who had all the shoplifters unbelievable operation with shoplifters. I was over in court. I, I was finishing up with a case before one of the judges, and I'm walking back out, back behind the courtroom. Into the, they, have a, they have jail cells back there. And uh, 
as I'm back there, somebody, you know, hey, you know, are, are you Bob Cooley? You're, you're Bob Cooley? You know, yeah, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, and okay. And he said, you know, uh, my name's Paul Baker. He said, you know, I'm here charged with murder and I need help. He said, you know, I've got a lawyer who's, who's a jag off or whatever. And I'd like, you know, and I'm, he was in the midst of a trial. I'd like to have you represent me. You know, now the judge was a good friend of mine. He, and I said, what's going on? He said, well, he said, uh, I'm charged with murder, with murdering a, a bartender or the owner of a bar. He says, and I didn't do it. And, and, and I've got, but I've got a lawyer who's a real, who's a real, you know, jerk and whatever. And I want to get rid of him and I'd like to hire you. And, and I said, well, I said, look, I said, I can't, I, I can't get involved. And he wanted a mistrial because the lawyer he had, you know, wasn't doing a proper job or whatever. I, I go back and, and I talk to the judge and, and he says, no, he says, you know, this case has already been going on for two weeks. What had happened was this guy had orig originally been arrested and charged with an armed robbery. A bartender had been robbed over on West. It was on West 26th Street in the Mexican section. A Mexican bar had been robbed. Two guys robbed it. When they ran out in the back alley, Paul Baker got arrested. He got arrested about two blocks away. A little bit of research to give some texture. April 18th, 1981, there was an attempted hit on two tavern owners called the, and it was the Family Pub at 2327 West Chicago Avenue. The names are Cornelius Cruz and his girlfriend were murdered at this tavern. Yeah, that's the case. The facts of the case were Paul Baker was arrested about a block or two away after the, you know, shortly after the robbery. And they found some guns, I remember, in a garbage can. Shortly before the case is ready to go to trial, the guy winds up dead. Somebody goes into the, somebody goes into the bar and they kill him. Not long after that. So Paul Baker is, is released on that. Paul Baker, so the case is dropped against him. Not long after that, the FBI has an undercover as an undercover meeting with Paul, uh, they're they're playing cards or something, or they're drinking in a, they're drinking in somebody's house, and they have Paul Baker on tape saying, I, "I I should dig him up again and shoot him again for all the trouble he's caused me." He was a Kentucky native who bragged about being a hitman for the hillbilly mafia. Yep, that's that's Paul, and oh, what what a scary sort he was. To, to see him, he, he looked like pure evil, the bizarre, bizarre guy. He got involved in so many other things later on in my life uh, that were really bizarre and interesting. While that trial was going on at 13th and Michigan is when they had him wired up. And the FBI came now that it happened while he was on trial for the armed robbery, that the FBI came in and, and they gave the state's attorneys, you know, it was, you know, he had left court. He had left court that day and gone home. And he was talking to, I think it was a brother-in-law or somebody who was wearing a wire. But anyhow, he wanted to have that case put on hold. And he wanted to be able to hire me to represent him because he said, I hear you're a terrific lawyer. It turns out he was basically the boss of a bunch of people I represented. I represented a bunch of these other hillbillies on shoplifting. And I represented uh, the leader brothers who were the biggest fences in town. And uh, and I was over there at the bar a lot of times collecting money, you know, from from my cases and whatever. But these are all these are all people that basically 
he had he was terrorizing himself. He was collecting street tax from these people. But anyhow, the judge wouldn't let me do that. He winds up getting convicted on the uh, armed robbery, and he's charged now with the murder. I had given him my card. His girlfriend contacts me, and the girlfriend, you know, wants to hire me. I says, I don't think you can afford me. I said, no. If you want me to represent him, I want $100,000 as a fee, and I want at least, uh, you know, 25000 retainer. And, uh, and she says, we'll get the money. I go over to see Paul. He's in the county jail. And uh, and he hires me. Uh, he had been found guilty already on the armed robbery, and he was awaiting sentencing on that. And uh, and he had been charged now with murder with this guy uh, Cruz. So I went and talked to him a couple of times, and then he wants me to go meet another client of mine. And and so I meet with him, and I meet with a couple of other clients of mine. They were with Paul in a bar when this took place. I find out who did kill Cruz. It was, uh, it wasn't Paul. It, it, the other guy he had committed the robbery with was the one who did kill him. When I find this out, I, ma- I make contact with the FBI agents. They, they hated Paul. You know, Paul to them was, you know, a real, real bad guy. We met over at, uh, at Binion's with him and we sat down and I said, look, I said, if you drop the charges, I'll bring in somebody who did kill Cruz. I said, Paul, you know, Paul Baker didn't do it. They said, what do you, well, who was it? I said, look, I said, I said, I'm not going to tell you who. I said, but if you drop the charges against Paul, I'll, I'll bring this person in and he's going to tell you who did. I said, but if you don't, I said, he's going to walk. I mean, I'll win this. I says, and when I win this case, it's going to show that some of your witnesses that you that testified in his case are lying and he'll probably get the other case reversed and he'll probably get the the attempted murder case reversed. And they basically told me, go fuck yourself. You know, well, we'll, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. And they left and we go to trial in the case and the Paul Baker case and I win the case. I get a not guilty. Did you ever tell the FBI who the murderer was? Oh, yeah. In fact, I got into a, I almost got into a fist fight not long afterwards when I was up there in federal court with the one FBI agent. It was about a week or two after the trial. And I'm in court. In fact, the one I'm in court with, the guy I'm in court with is Pat Marcy's nephew, one of his nephews who was arrested and charged. These guys were breaking into houses and robbing people, not just in Chicago and Illinois, but also in Indiana and in Michigan. And I was representing him. And the one agent I had met and talked with, it was a little guy. This guy couldn't have been more than about you know, more than about 160, 170 pounds, a little smart aleck. They wanted me to have Pat's nephew uh, cooperate with them, and he wasn't going to. We put him guilty to 15 years over that. The big million-dollar Levinson uh, burglar, he was involved in that, among other things, and they wanted to know who the other people were. What was the heist? Uh, that was where, if you look at Levinson's, was the name of the place. They, they had gone into the sewers and disconnected the burglar alarms and the rest of it. It was a huge robbery. Levinson's was one of the biggest jewelry stores around. They wanted me to get him to cooperate, and and, then, and I told him, no, he's not going to cooperate. And we were out in the hall, and this is up in the federal building in front of one of the courtrooms. And this guy gets in my face. He comes over, and he says, you should be ashamed of yourself. And you got this murderer off, you know, wherever. And I said, fuck you. I said, you know, and I said, fuck you. 
And then there's people all around us. There's an FBI agent making a jackass of himself. And, and, I don't, and he gets right into my face. And, you know, and, uh, and I says, you know, I said, you had your chance. I said, you guys had your chance. Somebody, the other, the other agent, in fact, my old work was the second one. Uh, he broke it up. Let's go back to something earlier. You mentioned Anthony Spilatro gambling activity in the western suburbs and there was a lot of bookmakers and gambling going on in nightclubs in that timeline are you aware of the chicago outfit the chicago mafia and its power and its reach when when do you have this when do you have this moment where you kind of understand the machine i knew they were powerful i knew that they had power period because they were the mob this was al capone's mob and you know because they had mentioned before that johnny diarco had been a I'd seen that in the newspapers. He had been a gunman with the Capone mob. He was the first ward committeeman and whatever. Uh, I knew these people were, you know, were powerful. When I became partners with Johnny and when I became part of the inner circle, I saw all the power that they had in every direction, not just, uh, you know, with, with the court system. I found that they controlled the entire city and most of the state. Expand on your first encounter with Tony Spilatro. The way I met Tony Spilatro, I was gambling with one guy, a guy named Mo Shapiro. Uh, I was betting with him. He was a major bookmaker in the north side. He was over there. He owned a delicatessen on Rush Street, and he was a fixture over at the Playboy Club. I, I met him when I was running around with Count Dante. That's when I met him. A little short guy, little short Weasley guy. I started gambling with him. I had a $5,000 limit with him. See, by now, I had gone past just playing with the numbers and moving back and forth. Now I'm doing some major betting myself as well as that. I've got different people with different odds, with a lot of different odds, with different numbers. And, you know, where I've got a lot of times in basketball and, and football and baseball and basketball and football games, I've got lines with three or four, you know, three or four point differences. And I'm, I'm, make, I'm making a lot of major bets myself. And by now, I had made contact with a couple of professional professionals that were calling me every day. And I'm making bets for them as well as for myself on certain games. These guys were doing something with the Ivy League, giving me one or two games a week that we would bet whatever we could bet on, and we would win every single one of them. When you say they were they doing something, they were fixing games. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I never they never told me, and I never asked. They would call me and and just say on you know on uh, on this particular one on Yale or on whatever. As a rule. Every time they were making they were making bets, what they were betting was they were betting the underdog with point, you know, and getting so many points. They were not betting the favorites; they were betting the underdogs all the time, and they were betting teams that normally I would I would have bet the other side. In other words, you got a real good team that's only given you know seven or eight points when they should be giving them about fourteen or fifteen. You know, because I know they're much, that much better team, and with my with my power ratings on the games, I would normally bet the other way. But I just realized when they tell me when they tell me get whatever you can, meaning get me if you can fifteen twenty thousand on the game. I know that you know I know that uh, you know <laughs> this team is ninety nine percent of the time. I may have lost one or two, but I don't even remember losing any of those when they would. And this would be. Uh, on a constant basis, so I was like, I'm by now I'm I'm gambling in the big numbers. But anyhow, what, 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 one second, did you think that the fix was in with the referees, the players, the coaches? Did you have any inkling 
on how those games were being fixed? You, you, or you, you just know, didn't I, care? In my, in my own, in my, in my own thinking was, in fact, I had said something to, I had said something to Jack Roberts one time. I had, you know, now, see, this is, this is pre-television. And who is Jack this Roberts? Is, Jack Roberts lived in Michigan. He was a, he was a, a professional gambler. That's all he did for a living was, uh, you know, was gamble. He would run the circuit. He would travel. He would go and spend a couple weeks at, in Chicago. Then when the horses were running over in Florida, he would be there for a couple of weeks. And then he would go to New Orleans. And then he would go to California, to L.A. He would travel, mainly travel the circuit with the horses because he was, he was busy fixing races. He was involved fixing a lot of horse races. But he was also involved with all this other gambling. And he was involved with people in Vegas. And he was involved with, uh, with myself. And he was involved with, uh, with Tony. Anyhow, he had become a very, very close friend. Well, it was every day. I'm talking to him every day. And I'm moving his money every day. While we're talking... I said to him, you know, I said, you know, wow, that's really kind of interesting. And he said, he said to me, when there's no witnesses, he says, when there's no witnesses, he said, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's so easy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's no TV. He said, and then I realized all these games that he, that he's calling me on, none of them are televised. At that time, you only had a couple of games, you know, a couple of games a day. If you watch these games, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, a whole number of them were doing this on a constant basis. Maybe not every game, but on a game here or there. The control they have in basketball in particular, any single call can be a four or five point difference. They, they have absolute control over these games. No question about it. And there's no doubt in my mind, you'll never convince me that a whole number of them aren't playing games. In this window of time, what is your understanding and awareness of who these people are and how are they treating you? Are you in their confidence yet? They all want to be my pal. You got to understand the, the mentality of these people. They, they, they know me as, as one tough ex-cop. When I first started running with these people, I got into a couple of, of beefs, and, and these guys were on their ass. And I wasn't that big a guy. I was only, as I got bigger, I was still only about maybe 170, 100 and, 165, 170. But again, I was I was built like a rock, and I had a reputation as one, as one you know, very very tough individual. When you say beef, you uh, mean a physical altercation? Yes. Yes, I wouldn't take shit from anybody. I wouldn't. And the reason they love me is because I wasn't a pussy like most lawyers. These guys did these a lot of these guys despise lawyers for a lot of reasons. Number one, they think they're pussies. They think they're all basically sissies. And number two, they charge them a lot of money and whatever. And uh, and, and they they basically detest them. me. They love me as a lawyer. You know, you're not like the rest of them, you know, they would tell me. But these guys, and I'm running around now, passing money out back and forth. Uh, they all want me as a, as a client. The way, I, the way I met Tony was, you know, I'm betting with, I'm betting with this weasel, Mo Shapiro. And I'm betting 5000 well, like, Why don't you like Mo Shapiro? Why do you call him a weasel? Just because of his well, physically just a little guy? No, no. I'm going to tell you what he did. 
I'm going to tell because I'm going to tell you what he tried to do to me and and what he could have done to anybody else just about except me. I would bet with him five thousand a game, and it was it was basketball season, and I could bet thousand dollar parlays on this particular on this particular day. And when I bet Mo Shapiro. He was over at the Playboy Club. That's where he would be. And one of the rooms there was where he would take his bets. And uh, and I would call and make my bets over there. In particular, he'd be there on Saturday, and I'd call. I'd call over there and make my bets. So I give him. I bet three games with him. And when I called, and and when I call the night, you know, the, the night of the games, and I get the scores, and it, it showed I had two winners and a loser. I would have won about sixty five about sixty five hundred dollars. And so the next day when I call him and I check my numbers, I had been up, I think I had been up about uh I, I think about eight, nine thousand dollars with him. Now I'm uh, I'm up like uh like about eleven thousand. So I call the next day and I call Mo and I wanna check my figure and he would always a piece of dirt. He'd always ask me for what my figure was, always, you know, and I'd tell him, and he says, he says, on the button, he says to me, on the button, okay, when I call the next one, he happened to be the first one I called that day, when I call the next guy I'm dealing with, and I owed him three or four thousand, something like that, and when I called him and I said, you know, I owe you three, he said, no, Bob, he said, uh, he says, I owe you, I owe you about three or four. And I said, you do? I said, no, I don't think so. Let's check our, let's check our, you know, our scores. You know, this one, a winner, that one, a winner, that one, a loser. He says, no, you won that bet. I said, I won that bet. He said, yeah, I think I was like giving two and a half or, or three, and you know, and I thought, and I thought they only won by uh, by one, where they had won actually, they had actually won by a half a point. As soon as he told me that, I tried to call Mo over at the uh, at the Playboy, and he didn't pick up the phone. No, this is like eleven o'clock or so, you know, and the games uh, the games don't even start until about noon. And he doesn't answer the phone, and I and so now I call a couple other people. And it wasn't like it was busy. He just didn't answer it. And I called a few more and I called again. He doesn't answer it. And normally he would answer any had to take my bets. I hadn't given him any bets yet. You know, I, I had just gotten his line, you know, for the day. When I finish up, I go over to the Playboy Club and, uh, and he's not there. I look for him, you know, all around. And they asked, have you seen Mo? No, he left. He left a long time ago. I try to call him the next day. He doesn't answer the phone over there. Uh, when I call him the, the day after that, and he answers the phone, I says, yeah. He goes, uh, okay. I says, Mo, we had the wrong, we had the wrong figure on Saturday. I said, you know, you owe me, you know, you owe me X amount. Uh, you know, what are you talking about? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I don't have those records. I threw them all away. He says, he says, I threw him. I threw all those records away. What the fuck you mean you threw them away? I said, I tried to call you right afterwards. You wouldn't answer the phone. He said, I had to go someplace on an emergency. I'm furious, but, uh, you know, what can I do? I see him about, it was a, it was about maybe three or four days later over on, in fact, it was right by the front of my house. 
and you know, you know, you piece of shit and whatever. And, and, uh, whatever I said, you know, you better, you better come up with that money. I'm not going to do anything and whatever. And, and off he goes, I go, I go down the next day. I'm at counselor's row the next day. I get grabbed by Tony Spilatro. He gets a hold of me over there. I'm, I'm walking through and he was sitting at one of the t- things and motions me back. I knew who he was. I, you know, I knew he was, a, I, I had seen him at some of those clubs and the rest of it, but I'd never talked to him. He was with his, with his own Cicero crew and whatever. And he starts yelling at me. And I says, you know, I says, fuck you. I said, I says, fuck you. I said that, you know, you know, I should have, I should have busted his fucking head. I said, and I told him what happened. I said that, you know, that cocksucker. And, and I told him exactly what happened. We became, I became one of his best friends after that. You know, he loved the fact that, you know, that I stood up to him when he came and, you know, when he came and like threatened me, uh, you know, the fact that I wasn't afraid of him or whatever, he started sending me business and, and doing, and doing a lot of things with me afterwards. But again, a lot of these people, you know, they, they became my friend, uh, Neil. It wasn't a matter of me chasing them. So that concludes conversation six. And for those who've been waiting to lift the curtain behind the first ward, and the Chicago Machine, Episode 7, does just that. Pat Marcy, Johnny Diarco Sr., Johnny Diarco Jr., all of it in Conversation 7. Make sure you follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast, and please reach out on Twitter. Thank you, as always, for listening.